tonight being the new moon night, we come together to hear the Patimokkha. It's an opportunity to review our practice over the last two weeks. and to reflect on the purpose of the practice and the role of the Patimokkha and the Vinaya training in the practice. Patimokkha is very much at the center of bhikkhu's lifestyle in that the rules, training rules we follow are essential. They're responsibilities that we have to take on when we become a bhikkhu, when we ordain, when we're accepted into the sangha. The recitation of Patimokkha is uh, an event that we're not allowed to miss if we're living in the monastery. Even if we are on our own, we have to at least make a determination for the oppositor. Even an arahant liberated from defilement still has to attend the Patimokkha. Even a bhikkhu in Niroda Samapati, deep samadhi, has to come out of that to attend the Patimokkha. Every day we have to reflect on our sila. The Vinaya is the way out of suffering. We practice the Vinaya and the Dhamma together. But as bhikkhus, and particularly new bhikkhus, we have to put much effort into learning the Vinaya, remembering it, and putting into practice on a daily basis. As Sati, Satawiharika, students of a preceptor or Antriwasika, student of a teacher, we take dependence on the preceptor, on the teacher, and in the forest tradition and the way Ajahn Chah taught that dependence is very, again, crucial to our practice. And it's very much in line with the Patimokkha training, the training in restraint, 
harmlessness, learning to be content with our requisites and to use them skillfully, learning to be harmonious, respectful of the teacher, respectful of other bhikkhus and indeed all beings. When we come to listen to the Patimokha, then this is a time to just quietly reflect on our various duties, responsibilities as bhikkhus, the relationships we have to the preceptor, the teacher, to the rest of the community, and then to the lay community. This is something we review and reflect on over and over again. Because when we come into the lay life, uh, into the bhikkhu life, we're coming from the lay life. So although we put on the robes, shave our head, outwardly we are bhikkhu, but <coughs> inwardly maybe the mind is not yet the mind of a bhikkhu. And we have to train using the Vinaya to work particularly with our coarser defilements, the defilements that we bring with us into the practice. Just as those um, river pebbles near the clothesline being smoothed and shaped by the effect of water over many, many years. So the effect of the Vinaya training on a bhikkhu's mind will smoothen the rough edges, the coarser of the kilesa. And it takes time to train, both to learn the ways of training, to adapt oneself to them, become familiar with them and comfortable with the training. That takes time and patient, diligent effort. This is why often when we come into the robes, we don't immediately get quick results in meditation, even though we tend to want that. We want to achieve and attain enlightenment, samadhi, insight. But this takes time because we're coming from the lay life. The Buddha said it's like lifting a log out of the river onto the bank. It's completely soaking wet and it will take quite some time to dry out even when the sun goes onto the log and dries the water out. Inside, the wood is still damp. You couldn't use it to light a fire yet. You come out of the lay life into the bhikkhu's robes. You still are wet with sensuality. Your habits of thought, your ways of speaking, acting are still surrounded by sensuality even though you have the bhikkhu's robes on. 
the eyes still look for the objects of sense, desire, pleasure. The mind still likes to imagine the objects of sense, desire. When we get frustrated, we display our emotions and so on. This is all the flood of sensuality that we come from, from the lay life into the bhikkhu life. So we're learning to use the training in the monastery to deal with that skillfully. Round off the rough edges, train our actions, our speech, and then inwardly the mind to fall in line with Dhamma through the Vinaya training. And particularly in the early years, we have no choice because we're still drying out from the, the flood of sensuality. We have to depend on the teacher, the sangha, the monastery, the training rules and the environment for practice. If we were to go off on our own, 99 bhikkhus out of 100 would probably just make a mess of it because the Bharami is not yet established and the wood has not yet dried out yet from sensuality. The Buddha talked many times about the causes for bhikkhus to fall away from the robes, from the practice. And one of them is to go out from the monastery too quick before one is fully established in the way of training before one has a firm foundation. He had many similes, like the simile of the cow, the naughty cow, that loves to eat the rice plants because they're green, tender and juicy. If the owner leaves it grazing in the forest or in the pasture, he can't trust it, it'll just keep going back to the rice paddy to eat the new rice shoots. So he has to put it in a corral or a fenced area. And whenever he lets it out, it'll always keep being naughty and going to eat the rice plants. So this is why when we're practicing as a new bhikkhu, often we feel fenced in by the Vinaya, the monastery, the rules, the training. But it's in our own benefit, for our own benefit. There's sensuality and what it stirs up in our emotions, both the liking and disliking, in the frustration of frustrated sensual attachment. It's sticky. Again, the Buddha had many similes for the stickiness of sensuality. The tendency to keep going back to old ways of thinking, seeking out sense pleasures, getting up, upset, frustrated when they're not met. It's like the uh, honey that a fly goes for. Thinks it's something good and sweet and nice, but puts his feet down on it and gets stuck one foot at a time. Puts another foot down to 
get the first foot out and he stuck, puts his little tube, feeding tube, his trunk down to get stuck, in the end completely stuck and dies in the honey. Or the Buddha said sensuality is like a man in a desert dying of thirst, so thirsty his his mouth is so parched, just wants a few drops of water. He comes across an oasis with a pond. Someone tells him that water is toxic. He'll die for sure and a horrible death if he drinks it. But his thirst is so strong, can't avoid it. In the end he breaks, his willpower breaks, his determination breaks, he tries it and then dies an agonizing, torturous death. Many, many similes about how the power of sensuality in the world pulls the mind back all the time. That's what's kept us going around samsara for so long. So our training in Vinaya is is lifting the mind up out of this sensuality, the flood of sensuality. But it's a time-consuming process, takes time, patience, diligent effort, training. And we have to give up to the training, commit ourselves to the training. But if we trust in the training, trust in our teachers, the enlightened teachers since the time of the Buddha. We can trust that over time it will have a very powerful, beneficial, good effect on ourselves and through that on other people as well. Sometimes we're even afraid to give up to the Dhamma if you look more deeply, it's again, it's different kinds of attachment, self-view, blocking our giving up to Dhamma, giving up to doing the right thing sometimes. We don't want to do the right thing. Some view is blocking it. Some opinion on Dhamma or some preference. Or sometimes it's just delusion. We just don't see what the right thing is to do or why we should do it. So we have to, as we practice the Vinaya, keep investigating truth as well. We can't just necessarily just take the Vinaya, the rules, the training, the meditation techniques at face value. We also have to investigate our own efforts, review our efforts constantly. Generally, our teachers encouraged us to commit by giving up wholeheartedly to the practice, which is just common sense, but it's not always easy to achieve. But just giving up, giving one's whole body and mind to the practice, body, speech and mind to the practice, putting one's effort in. So whether it's just 
that monk sweeping leaves at Lumpur Chasana and give it all you've got when you sweep leaves. Could be vacuuming a floor in this day and age, wiping a floor, blowing leaves even. The idea is to give it all you've got, even if you're feeling a bit tired or restless. You find if you give it all you've got, the various duties you have to perform, the rules of training you have to follow, the meditation technique you're using, if you can rise up and give it all you've got wholeheartedly, you tend to get a better outcome. You start to wear away the stubborn defilements, the laziness, the conceit, arrogance, the opinions, the views and so on, the love of comfort. So it's just a basic reflection on how wholehearted is my commitment to the practice, to the training, to the rules, to the teacher, the Sangha to the Buddha. Something we can constantly review and keep looking at the quality of our effort in the practice. Because we're doing it every day over and over again, it is easy to become habitual, complacent, take it easy. We maybe have learned intellectually what the rules are, what the practices are, but whether we're committing wholeheartedly yet or not is not the same. That depends on the quality of our effort. That's something we have to look at every day and even every moment of every day. There's no, we never have to be at a loose end. We can look at the quality of our practice. Most monks find, as you go through the practice, you know, there's many memories of the first year or two when you had to do duties, chores that you didn't want to do, your work projects, cleaning, cleaning up after other people, sorting out things, messes that you didn't make, and so on. It's these sort of times that often in the beginning of the training you get some insight into how to let go of different emotional states that arise in the course of that. Sometimes we have to do things that we would rather not do, but you know, the the lifestyle requires maybe we have don't have help so we have to learn to help ourselves with building or maintenance or cleaning remember when I was living with Ajahn Kun and building had to build a sala because there was no sala just an open sided eating hall which was very small and hot with a tin roof in the hot season wet in the rainy season, mosquito-filled in the rainy season, cold in the cold season, and so on. They didn't have a proper uh, sala. So whenever funds were offered, we'd have to start building again. 
even though nobody really wanted to build. But it was just the thing we had to do. But I remember he was very sharp. He knew people didn't want to build, so he'd come around. Well, he'd be overseeing the building and check up on people's state of mind as they're doing the building. He could tell if somebody was fed up, full of uh, aversion or just opinions. They usually just come and join in and do exactly what you're doing right next to you. If you're mixing concrete or we used to do this rendering on the walls, the bricks were built up and then we'd render the walls. And nobody knew how to do it. We just made a, had a go at it. And he'd come along and stand next to you and he'd just do it without making a word, saying a word, without making a fuss. He'd just do it giving everybody an example how to just do the job until it's done without a fuss. Often it's these sort of mundane situations you can reflect to see defilements arising and how you can actually let go of them in a situation. And of course he would talk about the benefit, like the community that supported that monastery, very, very poor, but had lots of faith. They had no money to offer the monastery, but they had time to come and practice Dhamma, listen to Dhamma. They loved to listen to Dhamma, quite happy to meditate even all night on the Ubozata. They just remind everybody, well, you build a hall, it's a place many, many people can benefit from hearing the Dhamma, meditating. Just giving that perspective so that one's own more immediate preoccupation with one's own candors, one's views, opinions, or dukkha waitana, one's perceptions, was put into perspective. And this is insight meditation in practice in a in an ordinary situation. Sometimes people just remind you of the wholesomeness of what you're doing and your defilements have to settle back, take a back seat while you reflect on what you're doing. The important thing is to see the value of the environment that we're in, the sangha, the monastery, the peaceful place, the training, as a way of dealing with our basic attachment to these five candors, which is manifesting every day. It's the source of our suffering, but it's also the source of our liberation the more we can establish mindfulness and see our own craving and attachment arising in, from moment to moment. This is where you're freeing yourself from the causes of suffering and from that flood of sensuality. When you actually see your own thoughts and moods and feelings arise, pass away. 
You're seeing that this is not really me, not mine, not a self, a being, a person. These are conditions that have come about through a process of cause and effect. Habit and past karmic conditioning. Whenever you stop and see that, then your mind is liberated. One has a little bit of Nibbāna, a little bit of liberation there. And the Buddha said this is the only way to understand Nibbāna is by understanding the five khandhas, see how we take them as a self through our delusion, through our habit. And when we establish mindfulness, then that sense of self in the candor starts to dissolve. We can see that they're in their nature, they're just impermanent, subject to degeneration and no, nothing lasting in themselves. Often in the beginning of the Dhamma we attracted by different aspects of the Dhamma which aren't yet the heart of the Dhamma but help us to give, give rise to faith. So sometimes we do come into the Dhamma attracted by the way the Dhamma is presented, the talks, the physical environment, the place the buildings, the style of practice, the externals, they do have an important role to begin our journey in the practice, maybe to bring up faith. But as we deepen our practice, we're bringing our mindfulness to bear just on these five candors from moment to moment on a daily basis observing how they just arise and pass away according to conditions how our thoughts come up and then go away memories come and go perceptions, views and opinions come and go feeling come and go and this body is changing constantly changing And the heart of the practice is this, it's just bringing mindfulness to bear on these five candors over and over and over again. But we use the training just to support that, to allow the mind to calm down enough to look and see for itself. Obviously if one had develop enough barami just to look once would be enough you know, like in the time of the Buddha different disciples reached enlightenment straight away on hearing the Dhamma just pointing out the Anicca Dukkha Anatta of the five khandhas just one talk is enough but for most of us we've been caught into that flood of sensuality for a long long time so it needs repeated investigation, repeated practice, repeated calming the mind down through the practice of sila and samadhi and then using wisdom to investigate. 
if you train, even when your mind's not peaceful, you just train your mind to investigate Dhamma, to investigate the Anicca Dukkha Anatta of your experience. Then those times when the mind does gather together, the mindfulness is sustained. The mind comes together, unifies. Then all that previous training in the wise reflection on an Ichadukanata, you can use it at that time and get very strong, powerful results. Even if you have been completely absorbed with sensuality previously, infatuated with sight, sounds, taste, smell, touch, the imagination and so on. One just doesn't know when the path factors will gel, will they, when they come together. Sometimes the Sila Samadhi Panya does come together and can have quite dramatic effects where you realize something that you haven't quite seen before some of your delusions drop away. Obviously in the time of the Buddha, the most dramatic sort of stories of this. Like I was reminded, talking earlier today, one uh, laywoman coming was reminded of the story of Kema, the bhikkhuni in the time of the Buddha, who foremost in wisdom, this is the Sariputta of the Bhikkhuni lineage. She had actually been very, very beautiful queen, married to King Bimbisara, and infatuated with her beauty to the point she even scared to go to the see the Buddha because the Buddha had that reputation of talking about the dukkha of sense pleasures, talking about a super. So often people are very attached to sensuality or afraid to even go and hear a Dhamma talk. They knew it would stir their kilesas. Maybe they'd react strongly. So she always stayed away when Bimbisara used to go and hear the Dhamma. And Bimbisara is a sodapana had great faith and always going to listen to the Buddha. Bimbisara though had that compassion for his wife, wanted to bring her into the Dhamma. The only way he could think then was to get the chief minstrel or poet from the court to start writing songs with lyrics talking about the beauty of the monasteries how peaceful, how beautiful the nature was there because she liked beauty and she liked nature to the point where she was curious, wanted to see the monastery where the Buddha lived. So she was kind of tricked by her own sensuality to follow him one day. And then she sat down, the Buddha, knowing her character, as he was giving his Dhamma talk, they are all meditating, listening, and he used his psychic ability to manifest uh, a nimitta of a beautiful deva 
fanning him. The lady deva, so Kama could see this beautiful deva, much, much more beautiful than herself, and she knew it and recognized that. Which again intrigued her. She thought, oh, maybe the, the Buddha does like beauty and appreciate beauty in, in different form. Has this nice, beautiful woman fanning him. So she was hooked through the sensuality, her eyes gazing on this nimitta. Once the Buddha had her hooked, then he could tr train her with wisdom. So he gradually started to age that form, that mind-generated form, aged as she watched it from being a beautiful young lady. So the skin started to dry out and crack. The teeth started to rot, go crooked. The hair went gray and white and become bald in patches. And the eyes from being beautiful young dark eyes became sunken in their eye sockets. The back became bent over. All the curves and the form of that body started to disappear and it eventually became the form of a very old, decrepit lady who then lay down and died, became a corpse with maggots and rotting flesh and then just a skeleton just disappeared. Because she had so much barami, she built monasteries for many Buddhas and practiced with many Buddhas, heard the Dhamma many times in the past. That was enough for her to gain insight into the five khandhas, Nietzsche, Dukkha, Anatta, and became an arahant on the spot. So after that, asked permission to become a nun and Bimbisara with right view, immediately said yes. So she went off to become a bhikkhuni and became foremost in wisdom. A very skilled teacher, famous for teaching uh, another king, perhaps because she'd been a queen. King Basenadi of Kosala was looking for a teacher one day and there were no monks around, so Somebody said, come to visit Kama, very wise bhikkhuni. So he went to hear a Dhamma talk. And he asked questions about what happens to an arahant after he dies. And she answered very skillfully. He asked, does he exist? No. Does he not exist? No. Does he both exist and not exist? No. Does he neither exist nor not exist? No. Just teaching and the only way to understand the mind of an arahant or experienced Nibbana is through contemplating the five candors and our deluded attachment that sees them as self. When contemplating the five candors we can see that these five candors are not a self, one by one. And form is not self, doesn't last, it's not some lasting entity. 
feelings, not a self, not a lasting entity, not a separate entity that just exists on its own. They're all conditioned things. When the Arahant dies, he doesn't go to some realm and last in a sort of eternal realm of bliss. Eternalistic view, neither is he annihilated at death. Annihilation would mean a self that is annihilated. It's not a compromise either. There's parts of the Arahant's candors that disappear at death and parts that carry on existing. It's not vague either, you know, neither exists nor does not exist, a sort of vague don't know answer. She just said the only way to solve this problem you have to go back to your own five candors and mindfully investigate them. Pointed out if you try to work out the mind of an arahant, she said, Have you have in your kingdom have you got any mathematicians that have worked out a formula for estimating the number of grains of sand in the Ganges River. He said, no, that would be impossible. He said, yeah, well, there's no formula that you can work out in the mind of an arahant either. He said, have you got a scientist who can work out the volume of water in the all the great oceans? He said, no. He said, yeah, similarly, there's no no one who can theorize and work out the mind of a Tathagata and Arahant. So he's very satisfied with those wise answers, went off to the Buddha who gave him exactly the same answers. This is Kema, who had practiced for many lifetimes, many Buddhas, very wise. Just pointing out that fact that we can only understand this Dhamma this training through contemplating these five candors. And this whole training is getting our minds into the point where we can look and recognize the true nature of these five candors. So getting us used to being peaceful, used to being content with little, living a simple life in the forest used to letting go of sensuality and our different coarse defilements. Vinaya is helping us to get used to that and be comfortable with that so that we can turn our minds to observe, look at the truth of the five candors that we inhabit, that we have here. It's just a matter of recognition, just Acknowledging the truth, recognizing it, the mind opening up, brightening to the point where it understands and these candors are not self, they're not mine. So then there's nothing to attach to with lust, there's nothing to get upset about, sad about, angry about, afraid of. There's just these five candors are just what they are. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. This person, this being is just what it is. It's just five candors going through an existence. Our thoughts, however great, 
high and mighty or how very low and coarse, just anicca, dukkha, anatta. Even the most blissful, refined state, the most blissful sukha, vaitana and piti and sukha of samadhi are still part of the kandhas, still anicca, dukkha, anatta. If we don't see that, then we'll probably aim for taking that as a self, the bliss of samadhi and would see then maybe a heavenly rebirth would be the highest, the most lasting kind of happiness. But it's still part of the kandhas. So only this insight, this wisdom that we keep training in will really brighten the mind to the point where it can understand the nature of everything that comes out of these kandhas. High and low, coarse and refined, near and far. Interior, internal, external. Wherever you look, anicca anatta. So this way out, this way out to liberation, it's a way of training body and speech and mind to provide this peaceful, firm foundation where we can just keep looking, observing with insight, turning the attention to see it in this own being, our own body and mind. And also we can learn from others around us we can see other people around us getting older, how their candors change, their perceptions, their thoughts change. See us, our own body changing, our mind states changing. Eventually we, uh, this is insight starts to become firm and fixed in the mind. Not as another attachment, we don't, Attached to the insight is just knowing the way things are. And even that state of detachment that comes from that, we don't attach to that either. Otherwise we'll be back with the five candors again. So I think it's just bringing the mind to see the way things are. This is why a lot of patience endeavor, patient but persistent practice helps to reveal this to us. When you sit, practice mindfulness for a longer period, often you see all kinds of things arise, pass away. When you do walking meditation for an hour or two, you see a lot arise and pass away. And you keep practicing in the robes for many months, years. You see a lot of different things arise, pass away. So these kind of insights become very, very clear. And one gains more trust in insight rather than the mind that goes back towards sensuality and the way of the world.
So I'll leave these uh, few thoughts with you for your reflection this evening.